0: And I'm going to ask you to consider with me, who is the most important and formative person that is speaking into your life right now? You likely, like myself, have a lot of voices in your life. Some you have there by choice, others not by choice. But whose voice are you most dialed into? Who's the most formative person in your life right now? Now, if you're a believer this morning, you might be thinking, uh, this is a trick question, right? (laughs) Right? Like like the answer is supposed to be God. And yes, of course, in a sense that God invites us into a personal dialogue with him, but through his word and through his spirit and prayer, but I think God has also designed us to be discipled and formed by others, that we are all, whether we know it or not, being discipled by others, and are always discipling others, that God has designed no person to be an island. So again, many voices in our lives are not there by choice. I mean, we, all of us, did not choose our parents growing up. We don't choose our immediate family. We don't usually choose our boss or our coworkers, or if you're in a school, you don't choose your classmates or your teachers or your teammates. But there's a difference between those who we hear and those who we choose to listen to. to be, again, dialed into, who, who are shaping your worldview and your place in this world. And what's kind of fascinating, as I was thinking about that this, uh, this past week, is just the sheer number of options we all have in 2021 to listen to and people to listen to. I mean, you go back just 100 years. Think about all across history. Just go back 100 years. It was a very small amount of people that you had to choose from that were going to be speaking into and shaping your life. You had family and teacher, maybe a pastor, some people in your community. If you happen to have some books, whatever books you read could speak into your life. But as technology has progressed, again, just a 100 years, more and more voices began to come in to be options for us with the newspaper and the radio and television and internet and social media, where from maybe 100 years ago, there was maybe dozens of options for you to choose from to today, literally billions of voices that can speak into your life within a matter of moments. And so, this is a question that maybe we don't think about a lot. And I'm not talking about just growing up in your quote-unquote formative years, because the reality is every year is a formative year for us, right? Like right now, who's the number one voice or community of voices in your life? It might be parents, uh, a spouse, a pastor, a church leader, a boss. But it could be any number of things. It could be a cable news host. It could be a YouTuber an Instagram influencer, a podcaster, a politician. And I bet if if we were to really take the time to dial into our own minds and hearts and we peel that onion back, we could probably pinpoint the person or the community of people that we know right now I'm listening to the most. And that's important to know for a multitude of reasons, but for Christians, here's the foundational point as we get into our text this morning, is, is the question underneath that question is this, is that voice, discipling you to look more like Christ or less? Is that person encouraging you to follow Christ more closely, grip him more tightly, or is he or she loosening your grip and fixing your eyes elsewhere? To put it another way, is that voice or that community leading you into the narrow gate that leads to life, or the wide gate that leads to destruction. It's the text that Pastor Joe preached to us this past weekend, and we are coming down the home stretch of the Sermon on the Mount, including today. We just have four Sundays left in the series that we began in January. And Joe preached on the narrow gate, which is entered by the power and blood of Jesus Christ, and by clinging to him alone, and that life leads to, and, and, and a life that leads to life flows from that, Or there's the wide gate that's entered by those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, do not cling to him, and then they also leave a life that flows from that. And as Jesus implants that visual metaphor in everyone's mind, now the rest of the Sermon of the Mount, from here till the end of chapter 7, the conclusion of Jesus' sermon, if you will, now teaches on how we can go down the narrow lane and stay away from the wide lane. The narrow lane that leads to life and stay away from the wide lane that leads to destruction as we approach final judgment. And the very next thing that we're going to see in the text is Jesus warn about false teachers. Beware of those voices in your life that will lead you away from Christ, not towards him. So let's go. Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thornbrushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the d- diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them. By their fruits. False prophets or false teachers have always been and always will be the greatest threat to the people of God. From from, from the beginning of the story all the way in the beginning of your Bible in Genesis 3, when sin first entered into the cosmos, it happened because of a false teacher deceiving Adam and Eve. And you go to the very end of your Bible to Revelation chapter 20. And you will see there the ultimate false teacher, Satan himself, will be thrown into the fire, the eternal lake of fire. So in between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20, in the kind of era that we also now live in, in redemptive history, false teachers will always be the biggest threat. In the Old Testament, we see the threat and destructive nature of false prophets all throughout Israel's history. Jesus here and calmly throughout his ministry warns about false teachers, con- consistently, again, in the Gospels, and then his disciples will stress it all throughout the letters in the rest of the New Testament. Paul and Peter and John and James, they're all going to say the same thing. Beware of false teachers. So this is a little bit of an aside, Grace Church, but we need to know, like today, June 6, 2021, false teachers are still the greatest threat to the people of God. So we want an action item. You want something to do from today's service and sermon. It is to pray for discernment for us as a church. To recognize and defend against false teachers. Pray for yourself. That you're not drawn in by voices that will lead you away from Christ. Pray for our church that we would not fall victim to false teaching that draws us away from Christ. Church, can I ask that you pray for Pastor Joe, myself, and the elders and the staff that we would not be influenced by false teachers that will inevitably then corrupt the teaching in this church and draw us away from Christ. Pray for us. Pray for yourself. It's always going to be the greatest threat. And the reason why it's so dangerous is because the most effective false teachers, hear me, the most effective false teachers are the ones who appear to be good ones. That's the point of Jesus' metaphors in these verses. He's not just saying that wolves will come in, but you notice they are going to be wolves that appear in sheep's clothing. It's not just the fruit of the tree that's going to be kind of empty or missing or just looks rotten. It's actually the fruit that looks good when you first glance at it. The most dangerous false teachers are not the obvious ones, but the subtle ones. This reminded me, as I was preparing it, of the good old story of the Little Red Riding Hood. The story, as I went back and researched the origins of it, I was surprised at how old it was. Maybe you knew this, but this story was first written in 1697, and it's an old children's tale that the original version, I think, is far darker than the modern adaptations of it. But the story is pretty simple. There's a wolf who saw a little girl in a red jacket on her way to her grandmother's house. The wolf wanted to eat her. So he distracted her and then went ahead of her to her grandma's house, swallowed the grandmother whole, and then laid in her bed with her clothes on. And the reason why the wolf was so dangerous was because he made himself not look like a wolf. He was disguised. He appeared to be something different. And it worked. Again, it's kind of dark, the original story. You know how the original story ends? He eats the girl and then falls asleep. The end. All right? Sweet dreams, little one. All right? Little old children's (laughs) tale before bed. That story is a myth. But then the Bible tells the true story, a a true myth, as C.S. Lewis would say. In the garden in Genesis 3, Satan came disguised as a serpent to lead Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And Eve ate it, not because the the, the fruit looked rotten and terrible and bad things were going to happen, but the fruit looked so good. Moses writes in Genesis 3 that it was satisfying to the eye. Likewise, the most dangerous false teachers are the wolves that appear as sheep. It's the bad fruit that appears to be good fruit. They lead to destruction. So it's a big threat. It's a difficult threat. And so the question that we should be hungering for at this point is, what should we look for? How do we know? How can we tell? There's one phrase that was repeated in this passage. Did you catch it? It happens at the beginning of verse 16. And then it ends, the passage ends at the end of verse 20 with the same phrase. You will recognize them by their fruits. Across church history, the consensus is that Jesus is speaking of basically two ways that talk about good fruit and bad fruit of false prophets or false teachers. So we're going to look at those one at a time. Number one, in their teaching, or what I would call their doctrinal fruit. How can you recognize their fruits to be either good or bad? It's, it's through their doctrinal fruit. Again, false teaching is any teaching that is contrary to the gospel, but the false teaching that I think Jesus is most primarily has in mind is that teaching which appears to be good at first glance. Like, most professing Christians, by and large, are not going to be led astray by somebody who is completely denying the existence of God or, or preaching God or another religion, right? So if, let, let's say over the summer, Joe and I were away, and we worked on somebody to come in and, and have the pulpit on a Sunday morning to preach, And let's say there was a mishap, there was a miscommunication, and there's somebody that we didn't really vet very well. And they came in to preach. And they got up here, and they said, all right, Grace Church, here's why there is no God, or why you're serving the wrong God. And you might be thinking, okay, this is going to turn. It's like a dramatic effect kind of preaching. But you actually get to the end, he says, no, there's really just no God. You're all fools. My guess is if that were to happen on a Sunday morning, most, if not all of you, are not going to walk out and be like, oh my gosh, there's no God. It'll probably bother you. You'll be upset about it. But I don't know that you're going to lose your faith because of it. But across church history, the most prolific false gospels are the ones that have a lot in common with the one true gospel. Where the differences are subtle and yet destructive. You go through church history in the early church, you, you, Gnosticism for the first 300 years ravaged the church, Arianism, up to more modern day, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the prosperity gospel, Christian nationalism are these distortions of the gospel that lead people astray and onto the path of destruction. And the reason why they're so dangerous is because they look so similar to the real thing at first glance contain a lot of common ground, but then they co-opted enough to destroy it, like the wolf in the little red riding hood, disguised just enough to be able to consume its target. So if the bad news is that false teachers are a major threat, then the good news of this text is that God has provided a way to defend against it. And if to sum up, how do you defend against? The, false, uh, the, the bad fruit of, of doctrine is to test it. Do you remember when we walked through 1 John last fall? For John wrote the book of 1 John 50 years after Jesus had died and rose again. So he was talking to basically a second generation of the church. And false teaching was prolific in that t- at that time. And in 1 John chapter 4, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Every church, every believer should test the voices you hear. Back to my question at the top. Do you test the voices that you allow to influence you? Do you test the voices that are speaking into you, that are maybe subtly leading you away from Christ and not drawing you more to him? Right? The primary voice of those who are teaching are going to be the pastor of a local church that you are a part of, right? But I do not want to be naive enough to assume that when it comes to following Christ, I or Pastor Joe are the only options you have of following Christ and being influenced and discipled to do so. Because in our culture, there's a lot of people who, prof- who profess to be a Christian. Again, there's cable new ho- news hosts who claim the title Christian. There's a the podcast host who claim the title Christian. There's authors, politicians influencers who carry the banner of Christians who are tempted to believe, well, if they say they're a Christian, then I'm going to latch on to anything that they say. Especially if they tend to say the things that we want to be true, whether or not they are true. Let's be honest, I preach once a week for 30 to 40 minutes. A lot of the voices we have in our lives are speaking to your life for 3 hours, 5 hours, 15 hours, 20 hours a week you test that which you hear. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in the middle of the 20th century, said that many times the way to discern teaching is not just noticing what they say, but often what they don't say. Don't just test what they say, but test what they're leaving out. A lot of Christian teaching is built upon the foundation of just positive thinking and self-help, right? And and, and they'll say good things, true things, that, that God is love. That we should treat others with respect and do good things because God is love. And we should accept people no matter who they are or what they believe or what they, how they choose to live their lives. Because love is love. And we hear that and we want to say, amen. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat others the way you want to be treated. right? Joe just preached that last week from the text. Yes and amen. But all too often teaching will never touch on the kind of texts that talk about the holiness of god the wrath of god the justice of god the reality of depravity and the need for salvation the offense of the cross which the apostle paul says is, is foolishness to the greeks and a stumbling block to jews This is bad doctrinal fruit that comes from incomplete teaching from a message that tries to make people nice when in reality people need need to be made new. But also, the opposite error can be just as prolific or destructive based on the context or church context that you grew up in or maybe are currently in. That God is only put forth as this cosmic force that seeks to destroy everybody unless you believe that Jesus died on the cross and took your sin and then you'll be saved. So do you want to go to hell forever? I hope not. If not, say these words. Sign this card. Raise your hand. And you'll be saved. And there's no talk about God's love for you as one who's made in his image. No discussion of how a relationship of God stirs your affections for him or for one another. No talk of how a life committed to loving your neighbor as yourself is what God has called us to, to stand for the marginalized, to be salt and light in the world by making Christ known. But Christianity just kind of boiled down to this cold transaction. It doesn't often impact the way you live. But again, just, just a quick four points and raise your hand if you don't want to go to hell. The bad fruit that comes from that incomplete teaching is cheap grace. It is false conversion of seeing God as just someone to be appeased and feared, kept in a box. So test the teaching, test what they say, test what they don't say, because just as in the days of Jeremiah, where the Old Testament false prophets would say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So false prophets today will say the kind of things that will gain a following and provide easy solutions to people without actually putting forth the whole counsel of God. So what should we test it against? At its base, it's the word of God. That the most important aspect of recognizing errors is to know the real thing so well. I, I've used this illustration before, but you know one of the FBI's biggest responsibilities is to recognize and root out counterfeit money in our society. And they say the way they train their agents to spot counterfeit money is to not show them all the different ways you can counterfeit money. He says, what do we do is We train them to know the real thing so well that any time something counterfeit comes across, they'll be able to spot it. In the same way... At Grace Church, we encourage our people to know and interact with and engage with the scriptures so much, so well, that when you're just, as you're growing and maturing in the faith, you're going to be able to spot things that are missing, spot things that are incomplete, spot things that are not discipling you well, and choose to not allow those voices to speak into your life. So how we kind of outline this is that every single week, every believer should engage in the word in three ways. I think I have the slides on the screen, but, but first is corporate, that, that this, that the weekly gathering of God's people, that God has designed that to grow and edify and strengthen the church. When we hear the word of God preached and sung together and prayed, that God strengthens us, and we often say that Sunday morning is not the only aspect of your Christian life, but it's probably the most important not the only hour of your Christian life, but it's probably the most important hour of the week in your Christian life. Not only what you get, but when you give to others by your presence. Number two is through um, personal reading and study. That we want to equip you to be able to engage the word on your own. To be able to read and grow in your understanding. And like anything, it takes discipline and practice. And we don't just know it like that. We're going to come across things that are going to be confusing for us but to have a discipline to know how to study and commit to it, to be in the word. And then third is communal. Studying, discussing this word with others through classes, through grace groups, through a one-on-one discipling relationship. So every single week, if we are personally studying, communally studying, and corporately studying engaging with the word, that God will strengthen us to know the real thing so well that you will be able to discern. that's number one be able to tell by the doctrinal fruit and then secondly the behavioral fruit the behavioral fruit so every healthy tree jesus says bears good fruit but the disease tree bears bad fruit and i know it sounds repetitive but bears reminding that the bad fruit is so bad and so dangerous you know why Because from the outside, it looks good. We all understand that metaphor, don't we? You buy fruit from the store or from the market, an apple, an orange, pineapple, watermelon. It passes the initial eye test, the feel test. And then you bring it home, you cut it open, you bite into it. Ah, so disappointing. This one looked good. Rochelle hasn't let me buy fruit for our family for 10 years. I always pick the bad fruit. <laughs> if the teaching was the doctrinal fruit test, then behavior is the moral fruit test. Upon look, a closer look, and again, Jesus is primarily talking about false teachers. As you look at them, as you listen to them, but as you see and experience their lives, do their lives reflect that which they claim to believe? When someone claims and professes and especially teaches about the kingdom of God, are they showing in their own life that Jesus Christ is not just an add-on to their life, but he's the transformative element to every aspect of their life, that he's not an addition to a part of the house, he's a renovation of the entire house, you know what I mean? And this true conversion will, at the end of the day, make itself known in our behavior. Do their lives reflect that which they teach? Not that we expect our teachers or voices to be perfect. But are they showing and modeling and encouraging and discipling you that over time, progressively, the term is progressive sanctification, that there will be a process of growing in Christ's likeness, and I can disciple you in that way because you're seeing that in me. Are you noticing their lives? All throughout this sermon, Jesus has been urging us, guys, beware of those who appear godly, who appear to say the right things. To do the right actions. But at the end of the day, it's nothing more than show. Jesus had in mind the Pharisees, who, again, he spoke about, they, they appear to be holy based on their public praying. It sounds so impressive. They sound so good. They, they, they seem to be giving so much money. They do it when everybody's watching. You see how generous they are. They seem to be fasting so much twice a week. Can you imagine how holy they must be? And Jesus said, It's all a sham. It's all for your praise, not for the glory of God. Again, Martin Lloyd Jones says concisely, way better than I say many more words. He says this quote, "But what a man is, he is bound to show." But what a man is, he is bound to show. Jesus says in due time, we will all be exposed. Especially to those closest to us. So, again, if I can go back to the question at the beginning of the sermon of who's the most formative voice in your life right now, my follow up question would be Do you actually know them? Are you known by them? Are you in such close proximity that you see their lives when no one is looking, when they're not quote unquote on? It is dangerous be primarily pastored by or discipled by someone you don't know or who doesn't know you. The reason why we care so much about covenant membership, which, you know, that next class is today at one o'clock, the reason why we talk so much about that. In, in, in 2021 when, when the reality is, is like, can't, like, can't church just be like easier than what it is now? Can't we just be content driven? And, and what, what I say often, and I don't do this to feign humility is that you can go find much better preaching than me in about five seconds on your phone. Love Ilya and the worship team, but you can find much better worship in about five seconds looking on your phone. If this was just content driven then what are we doing here? You don't have to wake up. You don't have to show up. You don't have to deal with people. But you can't be discipled over the computer. You can't be discipled over your phone. You can't know someone's life via a podcast. You can't be an embodied community where your gifts are being used to build up others and you're being built up by others. And the reality is that you cannot live out your purpose to glorify God by knowing Christ and making him known without also knowing others and being known by others others which is why I think it is reasonable and biblical to think that your covenant faith community should be the collective voice that shapes you most in life not the only voices that will shape you but the most formative voices that should shape your life should be the community of faith that you're covenanted with you will recognize them by their fruits Christian's behavior is not the be-all, end-all. We're not saved by works, and we know that. But as we follow Christ, while perfection will never be the standard, progress is the expectation of progress. So that we will never be Christ, but we will, over time, by God's grace and through His Spirit, grow in Christ's likeness. And Paul writes in Galatians five the classic passage that many of you have memorized, the fruit of the Spirit. There's that word. The fruit of the Spirit that over time in a commitment to good teaching and a desire by the power of the Spirit to grow in Christlikeness, that inside you these things will grow. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As you think about the voices in your life that you are being shaped by, do you see this fruit in their life? Is by your proximity and being known by them and knowing them personally, is that encouraging you? Is God using that to grow these things in your own life? You will recognize them by their fruits. Over the last 2,000 years, God has grown, sustained, and bore fruit through the local church on every continent. But the church is not perfect. The church, unfortunately, also has a long history of choosing power and privilege over truth, of denying the things that they claim to believe in order to maintain status. It's happened before, it's still happening now. And we need to be aware that we ourselves can be complicit in the bad fruit by being silent in the face of it. That the bad fruit is not just bad things we do, but it also could be the good things that we don't do when we do witness evil and need to expose it, to acknowledge it, to lament and repent of it. So as we close, and we're a little briefer this morning, I just want us to dwell upon this. Think about the fact that Jesus just talked about the narrow path that leads to life. Few will find it. Why is the path that leads to destruction. Most will go through it. And then the first thing he says to unpack that is to warn us of false teachers. That our standard that we hold others to is not unrealistic to expect the teaching to be sound to be for and for the behavior to back it up. And it's not as simple as, hey, Christians are the good people in the world and non-Christians are the bad people in the world because we all know that there are many people who do not proclaim Christ, who look more like Christ than those who do. But the difference is, Christians are the ones who have the primary motivation to do all what they do to the glory of God. To grow in that over time. And our job each and every day is to live lives worthy of the calling which we've been called to to bear good fruit along the way, to build one another in the church and to love our neighbors outside of it. This is the narrow path. And the voices that we lean on most in this world should be the voices that encourage you on that path. Let it be true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word at how it clearly instructs us, even when that teaching can be hard, Lord, that it can be hard to know how can we judge others in their teaching and their behavior, Lord, when we ourselves are imperfect, that we know our own faults even more than we do others, Lord. So give us the courage and the wisdom to be able to discern well, to judge well while not having a judgmental spirit. To prioritize of all the choices we have, the people we allow to speak into our lives, to prioritize and lean into the ones who make us look more like you, not less. Lord, give us the wisdom to be able to judge behavior in others, again, not in a way that's unrealistic, but that you, we would be able to see it through the grid of the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, of those who grow in those virtues and encourage us to do the same. I pray we be quick to confess where we fall short, knowing you are faithful and just to forgive, and that you would use us, Lord, to play a part in the story of the church making disciples of all nations for your glory and your glory alone. Father, keep us on the narrow path, and let let you do it for our, your name's sake. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. As we sing and prepare to conclude with the Lord's Supper.